Today's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 133 and can be found on page 625 of the Church Bibles. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's New Testament reading comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and can be found on page 1234 of the Church Bibles. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we start, let me just mention three quick points. Uh, first, of all, first of all, this is the start of a sermon series today. We're starting a new series on the seven churches of Revelation. So today's sermon is going to be a little bit longer than usual. So if you have a beef roast in the oven on time to bake, uh, it might be more medium well done rather than medium done. So, or if you have reservations, but we'll get there. Uh, this is introductory, so there's a lot to cover uh, in advance. Uh, second, if you have a pen, I'm going to say four words this morning that would be worth jotting down. If you happen to have a pen, you might get that out. And also, if you have your Bibles with you, that would also be quite useful too in order to um, just note some of the things we're reading through this morning with Revelation chapter 2. So as we prepare now for the preaching of God's word, let's pray. Please join me in prayer. Father, through your spirit, empower us to hear your word and do your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as I just mentioned, today we start a sermon series on the seven churches of Revelation, from Revelation 2 and 3. And the way I would like to introduce this sermon series might seem a bit unusual, I suspect. This is because the way I would like to introduce this sermon series is by talking about employee performance reviews. Did I just hear a groan? <laughs> right. No, whether you give them or whether you get them, employee performance reviews are seldom a source of joy, right? Amen? Amen. All right. 
But they're reality, right? They're reality, I suspect, for many of us. Now, raise your hand if you've ever given or gotten an employee performance review. Okay, some of you, many of you. So let me just briefly explain, briefly explain some of what historically has been part of an employee performance review. And again, this has to do with Revelation 2. Wait for it, it will come. But let's just think about employee performance reviews for now. I'm going to boil this down to the basics, to the classic elements of the performance review. So for purposes this morning, we're not going to worry about the newer types of performance reviews, uh, such as narrative appraisals, stack ranking appraisals, uh, behavioral anchored rating scales, uh, OKRs. Anyone ever heard of OKR? Right? Um, and the um, dreaded 360 degree review. Right? Some of us have been part of those. Right. Anyway, sorry to bring up all these bad feelings already in you, but no, we're just going to deal with classic kind of performance reviews and their classic components. Nothing cutting edge this morning. Okay, so historically, historically what these performance reviews have consisted of is the employer meeting with the employee in a discussion of first, what went well? What went well? In the old days, at least, the employer would tell the employee how this, that, or the other thing was a positive contribution that they had made to the organization. And then they would praise them for this. So here's the first word now. Let's call this part of the review then the commendation. The commendation. The employee is being commended for what they did right. Okay, so that's the first part of the employee performance review, the commendation. Now, with most employers, this time for commendation usually lasts about, well, a minute, maybe. And then there's the next section, the next section. And this next section is the complaint. The complaint, that's our second word, complaint. Here, what is discussed are areas of improvement, right? What was not done well? and what needs to be done better by the employee. Uh, errors, mistakes, disappointments, failures, missed targets, poor results are all brought up in this part of the review. In the nicest possible way, of course, yes? Gentlest of voices. Now, from my experience, the point of this complaint section is to remove from the employer's mind, the employee's mind, any thoughts of a significant raise or, or promotion. The job of the employer here in the complaint section is to get that employee simply thankful that they have a job, right? All right, let's move on. So that part usually lasts a long time, but then at some point, at some point, the employer will move on to what is called the correction. And that's our third word, correction. This is when the employer tells the employee how exactly they can go about improving. What progress would look like for them in their job. These are explicit instructions given to the employee for correcting what they have been doing wrong. Okay, that's number three. And then finally, in some cases, after the correction section, there's one more section and this is called the consequence section. The consequence section. Here the employer lays out what might happen for good and for ill 
depending on the employee's response to the review. It might be a raise, it might be a promotion, it might be a, a pay cut or a demotion, it might even be a transfer, or it might even be termination. Regardless, the consequences are communicated from the employer to the employee. All right, just to review now, we have, as parts of the classic review process, four components, four components. We have commendation, we have complaint, we have correction, and we have consequences. Now, I've got some interesting news for you. You might think that I got these terms from an employee handbook of a company. You might think I got these terms from the management textbook of a university or something like that, but actually where I got these terms from was a Bible commentary. A Bible commentary. A Bible commentary on Revelation 2 and 3 written by a New Testament scholar. You see, these terms that I've just mentioned can not only be used to describe what happens when an employer assesses the performance of an employee, but these terms can also be used to describe what happens when Jesus Christ assesses the performance of a church. And this is what we have, in fact, in Revelation 2 and 3 in the New Testament. We have Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, assessing the performance of seven churches in Asia. Each church receiving a review that looks a lot like the structure I just described. He basically uses the structure of commendation, complaint, correction, and consequence to assess the performance of each church. Unlike employee performance reviews, though, what is what is recorded in Revelation 2 and 3 in these reviews is not relevant information only for the one being reviewed. No, as we'll find out, what Jesus through his servant John writes here in Revelation is relevant for all churches of all places of all times. This because what Jesus is doing here is he's revealing his will for his church in this world. Who they should be. What they should be doing no matter where and when they exist. Okay, so let's look now this morning, that by way of introduction really to the whole series, let's look now at Jesus' review of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was, as many of you know and probably have been to even, Ephesus was a city located in what is now uh, known today as modern-day Turkey, and it was a place where the Apostle Paul had planted a church on one of his missionary journeys. Paul later wrote to this church in Ephesus a letter we know as the book of Ephesians, right? And it is now to this church whom Jesus writes through his servant John in Revelation. Now in the sermon title, I've called it ICC Ephesus. Uh, that stands for the International Christian Church, not the International Protestant Church of Ephesus. Uh, of course, that's not the actual name of Forgive me for the liberty, but I do think it fairly represents who this church is. A church of believers from many places, uh, not unlike our own. So Jesus starts his review with words that might seem a little puzzling to us. If we read that, that first, those first words of his review in, Ephes in um, Revelation 2, this is what Jesus says. And depending on what 
version of the Bible you have might be a little bit different, but um, these are his words in essence. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So as many Bible commentators point out, this is very symbolic language here. And through this symbolic language, Jesus is making a pretty strong statement. When he says that these are the words of those who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he's telling that church at Ephesus that he is the Lord of the universe. He is the one who holds the entirety of heaven and earth in his hands. The seven stars stand for the whole universe, the entirety of the universe. And holding the whole universe in your right hand is symbolic for, for governing it. So this, as one commentator says, is a statement of power. A statement of power. And then when Jesus says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands, he's telling the church there at Ephesus not about his power, but about his presence. That he is present with his church here on this earth. The seven lampstands represent all churches everywhere. And they are his lights to the world. And Jesus is not far removed from them. No, he is near to them, walking among them, he says. He is present. That's the statement here. Okay, so what Jesus is doing with his introductory statement is establishing his transcendence, big word, and his imminence, another big word. What he's saying is, he is almighty God above. That's transcendence, right? He's almighty God above. But he's also attentive God below. That's imminence. He's someone then who should be listened to because he's both and. Okay, now to the first section of the review itself. The commendation. The good stuff. Jesus is going to tell him the good stuff now. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Okay, so to understand the commendation here, brief picture of the historical uh, situation Ephesus is, is probably helpful. Um, there are many areas, there were many areas of the ancient world at that time in which there were lots of itinerant, wandering prophets and preachers. Self-proclaimed apostles, you might say. They were people who would just go around and purport to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, often in exchange for food or lodging or remuneration. But there's a problem with all this. Big problem. The problem with these self-proclaimed apostles was that they weren't speaking truth. These self-proclaimed apostles of Christ would, for example, say that, that when Jesus was on earth, he was only a spirit. And he, was, he had no flesh and blood body like you and me. Just a spirit. Like a ghost, almost. That's what they would go around saying. Right? And some of you in the back of your mind may say, oh yeah, those were the Gnostics, right? All right. Other people, they would say that in order to be the, the true people of God, 
You believers, you need to return to the Jewish ceremonial laws. You need to circumcise your male children. You need to observe the Sabbath. You have to observe dietary laws. You have to be kosher if you want to be a true believer of Jesus Christ. Still others, they would say, that, uh, they would say to, to the church, they would say, well, as believers, you have the liberty to do anything you please in your lives. Anything you want. It's all good because you only have to believe in Jesus. Nothing more is required of you. Just believe in Jesus. Then do what you want. The libertines. So a lot of misinformation at that time going around in the world. But this is what we read in the text now. The Ephesians were not buying any of it. The Ephesians were not buying any of it. And so for this reason, Jesus commends them. He commends those in the Ephesian church for not tolerating these wicked men, as he calls these false apostles. He commends the church at Ephesus for calling out their false teachings and sticking instead to the truth. But it's not only Jesus, actually, who recognized this exemplary behavior of the Ephesians. I found in one commentary this segment of a letter that the, the church father Ignatius, some of you might have heard of Ignatius, uh, he was a bishop, and he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And this is what he said in his letter to the Ephesians. Again, this is not in the Bible. This is from historical documents. This is what Ignatius says to the Ephesians. He says, I've learned that some people have passed through on their way from there with an evil teaching. But you did not permit them to sow any seeds among you, plugging your ears so as not to receive anything sown by them. So similar to what Jesus is saying, Ignatius is commending that church for being great defenders of orthodoxy, steadfast in their beliefs, valiant for truth. What then could possibly go wrong? Well, actually, plenty, plenty. And it's summed up in the complaint, the next section, the complaint that Jesus has with his church in Ephesus. He says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Or as some older translations say, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So what is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying here? Well, some of the commentators I read suggest that the Ephesians have forsaken that first love they had had for Jesus. And that is certainly a possible interpretation here. But more commentators I read on the subject seem to suggest that the Ephesians have forsaken the love they first had for each other. So my opinion that the Ephesians have forsaken their love for each other this makes more sense in the context and according to the text and actually for other reasons as well, but, but not least of all, because I just can't imagine that Jesus dealing with a church that has forgotten or forsaken their love for him would commend them in such a way starting out, right? If you don't get that right, as Nathan alluded to in the children's message, if you don't get that right, well, forget about it, right? Forget about it. You just can't imagine Jesus commending a church that no longer loves him. Well, in any case, if the Ephesians are indeed a group of people who no longer show that love to each other, perhaps we can imagine why. Here's what one person I read, one commentator said about this week. It's this. 
The one charge against the Ephesians is that their intolerance of imposture, their unflagging loyalty, and their hatred of heresy had bred an inquisitorial spirit which left no room for love. Okay, that's a lot of big words, but here's more of a clarification coming. They had set out to be defenders of the faith, arming themselves with the heroic virtues of truth and courage, only to discover that in the battle, they had lost the one quality without all others are worthless. And of course, that one quality without which all others are worthless is love, right? 1 Corinthians 13. So in other words, in other words, it could be that the Ephesians were so zealous to fight for truth that they forgot how to practice love. Or to say it another way, the Ephesians' first inclination, their first inclination in their dealings with people whom, with whom they disagreed, their first inclination was to attack them, including those perhaps in the body of Christ, who were their good and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why now in the correction part of the review, the correction, remember that's the third part, Jesus tells them this, remember the height from which you've fallen, repent, and do the things you first did. So remember, repent, and do the things you first did. That's what Jesus is telling them. Do the things that you once did, we can assume, that, that showed your love for each other. And we can imagine these things that they were to do once again were things like do kindness, do patience, do understanding, do humility, do meekness, do gentleness, do submission, do service, do sacrifice, do love as you once did. So that's the correction Jesus offers. And to end his review of the Ephesians, he gives them now the consequences, right? We're on the fourth element. First, the consequence for lack of repentance, for responding with indifference to a call for his correction. This is what Jesus says. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So if the Ephesians don't repent, Jesus says, he's going to shut the place down. He's going to fire them all. The lampstand is going to be removed. And for good reason, I think. When what is supposed to give light to the world instead adds to the darkness of the world, that is, to say the least, counterproductive, right? Ultimately, it does much more harm to the kingdom than help. Which I'm sure the Ephesians, with their zeal, with their zeal for combat, combating heresy, would have been surprised to hear. They think they're preserving the church and its witness to the world, when in fact they're destroying it. 
So no wonder Jesus threatens to remove them. Despite the harshness of this consequence, though, Jesus does once again acknowledge something in their favor. They, too, hate what the Nicolaitans are doing. Now, Bible scholars aren't exactly sure what the Nicolaitans were up to. Must have been pretty bad to warrant specific um, reference here. But in any case, credit is given where credit is due. Okay, positive consequence. Now we move on to the final part, the negative consequence. This is how Jesus ends his review of the church at Ephesus. He says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So if the Ephesians are able to overcome this tendency to make war relentlessly and indiscriminately, and if they're able to go on and start practicing love among each other again, if they're able to, to live a life of true faith and not just some twisted, angry, combative version of it, then they will enjoy eternal life with God, as Jesus has very poetically put it. They will eat of the tree of life, which is an allusion here to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which was the source of everlasting life in the presence of God. They will eat from the tree of life because their love for each other will demonstrate their true faith in Christ. It will have shown, this love will show that their faith is the real deal and not a sham. So the long and short of this performance review given by Jesus to that first century church in Ephesus is that unless things change, unless they start preaching and practicing a gospel of truth and love, they're going to get fired. They're going to get fired. And this because Christ has no need on this earth for churches that do truth but not love. He has no need on this earth for churches that do orthodoxy, but don't do compassion and kindness, patience and understanding, mercy and generosity, submission, service, sacrifice. He has no use for churches who get all the facts right, but fail to relate to others right. Is no use at all for such churches. So, of course, the problem that Christ is describing here with this first century church, this is something that can very well be a problem for a 21st century church, too. We, too, as one writer puts it, we, too, can be practitioners of what might be called loveless orthodoxy. Loveless orthodoxy. We too can fall into the trap about being, about being all about truth and nothing about love. So one thing that very much attracted me to IPC Zurich during the calling process was its robust commitment to truth. Robust commitment to truth. Just to be considered to be considered for the position, I had to answer around 400 questions about what I believed on this, that, and the other thing. Okay, not 400, but um, 300? 
I, I, I shouldn't say this now, but I feel like after doing the application process, I should be given, a, if not a PhD, at least a, a, a master's or something degree. Right? <laughs> My master's was a lot less work than that. Anyway, enough about me. Okay. Maybe it wasn't that many questions, but you get the idea. Truth matters here. Truth matters here. And I really like that. I really like that. And of course, love matters here too. During the calling process, this was also made clear to me in the questionnaire, but also in the questions people would ask in the, in the, in the uh, Zoom calls. During the call process, this was made clear to me, it was made clear that IPC Zurich valued not only truth, but love, good stuff, and I thank God for it. But now in light of our passage today, in light of Jesus' review of the church at Ephesus, let me just briefly voice a concern. A concern not just for our church, but for every church that possesses a robust commitment to truth. So given our commitment to truth and society's embrace often of untruth, the temptation exists that we too, like the church at Ephesus, could make the defining activity of this church that of combating untruth. Given our commitment to truth and society's embrace often of untruth, the temptation exists that we too could, in effect, make our reason for existence here in this place to be fighting falsehood and attacking those who spread it. Attacking early and often those both inside the church and outside the church whom we perceive as threats to truth. The temptation exists that we too, instead of regularly serving others, regularly sacrificing for others, regularly submitting to others, instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, instead of mourning with those who mourn, in other words, practicing Christ-like love, instead of all that, we make opposing untruth the chief exercise of our faith. That's what our faith is all about, in its essence. That particular thing. The unfortunate reality is that we could preach about the untruths of others every Sunday. We could teach about the untruths of others every week in our education programs. We could talk about the untruths of others at coffee time after the service. We could center retreats around it. We could make the topic of our discussion, make it a topic of our discussion in our home groups. We could read books and blogs about it. We could write books and write blogs about untruth. We can pass each other's, each other emails all week about untruths. We do all these things all the time and feel ourselves to be a very faithful church indeed, just as I'm sure the Ephesian church felt themselves to be a faithful church indeed. But the reality in such a case would be that ultimately the words we might hear from Jesus Christ would not be well done, my good and faithful servants. No, the words we might hear from Jesus Christ, based on Revelation 2, 
or you're fired. You're fired. You're fired because in your pursuit of truth, you failed to practice love. You're fired because in the face of every perceived threat, in the event of every encountered disagreement, your first inclination was to make war and not peace, to attack rather than to discern. You're fired because you made your faith all about possessing the right answers and nothing about rightly relating to others. You're fired because in your zeal for theological purity, you made the boundaries of my kingdom smaller than I have made them myself. And in doing so, you drove people away from my kingdom rather than attracting them to it. No, I have no need for you. You're fired. So in the end, if as a church we have ears to hear, we will be absolutely positively valiant for truth. Amen? Amen. But we'll also be absolutely positively fearless in love. It's, of course, not always easy to figure out how to practice both in conjunction with each other and everything that arises in a church or in society. So we're going to need some wisdom. We're going to need discernment. We're going to need patience. We're going to need prayer. And we are going to need the Holy Spirit. But that we should embrace both, that we should be committed to both, this is indisputable based on Christ's words to the church here at Ephesus. So may God, through his spirit, enable us to be a church both of truth and of love for his glory and the benefit of our world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you've given us some tough words this morning through your servant, John. And we pray, Lord, that we would examine ourselves as individuals, we would examine ourselves as Christians, whether we are, in fact, valiant for truth and whether we are, in fact, fearless in love. Lord, through your spirit, make us both. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.